This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Campaigners had been warning this was on the card. State legislators had been chipping away at it for years. But this week came a bombshell-leaked document showing that the US Supreme Court is ready to remove a woman's right to an abortion by overturning the Roe v. Wade judgment of 1973. Unless the Biden administration moves swiftly and radically to stop the highest court in the land, the future of reproductive rights in America is about to change dramatically. So what will it take to stop the majority conservative bench from altering the lives of half the nation? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Yeah, so I learned that a draft of the majority opinion had been leaked uh, on the subway. I was on my way home from dinner with a friend of mine. Moira Donegan is a Guardian US columnist. She and I spoke last year when the Biden administration sued the state of Texas after that state signed into law the most extreme anti-abortion measure in America. She has been following the debate around the trajectory of reproductive rights in America closely. She wrote a column for The Guardian as soon as this leaked judgment of the Supreme Court became known, writing, it'll make women prisoners to their own bodies and to men's ideas of what those bodies must mean. It will make our country weaker, crueler, stupider and less vibrant. As you can imagine, these last few days have been pretty painful. You know, I, Jonathan, I write about this stuff for a living. I've known Roe v. Wade was going to be defeated for, for quite some time. I'm also a woman. I'm also a American citizen. I am a person with a lot of great faith in my country. And I'm also a feminist who uh, has tremendous investment and appreciation for women's talents and belief in, in what women can do when they're free. And there's no amount of intellectual understanding or preparation that can insulate you from the grief and terror of realizing what's about to come. It was it was a really terrible moment. We're going to stay focused on what could be a historic leak of an even more historic draft opinion signaling that the Supreme Court may be set to overturn Roe v. Wade. The opinion was first obtained by Politico, and it's attributed to Justice Samuel Alito, who writes, quote, Roe and Casey must be overruled. Let's then talk through exactly what has just happened uh, and what the document itself says. So, as we said at the top, Roe versus Wade, a landmark court judgment from the Supreme Court in 1973 that ensured that access to abortion was a constitutional right in the US, meaning the individual states could deviate a bit, but the basic right was locked in at federal level in the Constitution. Tell us what the document that has come out of the Supreme Court has effectively done to that. 
So the document that was leaked expresses outright contempt for the idea that abortion is protected in the Constitution. It relies on a very strict and limited understanding of individual constitutional rights, which posits that rights that aren't specifically enumerated in the Constitution, like uh, named there, must be justified by what Alito calls deeply rooted historical precedent. So the idea that Alito uses among among some others uh, is that, you know, it was common for states at the time of the of the ratification of the 14th Amendment to ban and even criminalize abortion. And therefore, abortion is not a sufficiently historically precedented right to be recognized by the court. It's quite myopic. Uh, it's a, a historical understanding of how abortion actually functioned throughout American and, and English history. And, and it also um, precludes sort of the idea of a march of American history towards justice and towards inclusion. But that's the reasoning that the court adopted. And then it overturns Roe, as um, as you've explained, but it also gets into and upends a later decision, which in civil rights terms is seen as hugely important, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, as I understand it. Now, just tell us what, what the significance of that is and what the arguments around it were. Yeah, so uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was a decision in 1992, which at the time was widely expected to overturn Roe. Uh, and in fact, it did sort of curtail access to abortion to some degree. Uh, the court in that in Planned Parenthood versus Casey allowed states to impose restrictions on abortions, uh, so long as those res restrictions were not deemed undue. And, you know, that's a very ambiguous standard. And, you know, that was, that was already to some degree a rollback. But what Casey also did was expand the reasoning for a constitutional abortion right from Roe's uh, privacy reasoning, which was which quite narrow, to a more textually robust equality reading of the Constitution. You know, so Casey said, not only is abortion guaranteed because Americans and their doctors have a right to privacy, but abortion is guaranteed because women have a right to liberty and equality under the 14th Amendment. So it expanded the reasoning for abortion rights. And uh, Alito's opinion very much walks back the understanding of liberty and equality rights under the 14th Amendment. And it does so in such a way that imperils several other rights that the court has recognized, among them the right to contraception, uh, the decriminalization of gay sex, the right to gay marriage, the right to interracial marriage. Uh, it's really quite an expansive revision of how 14th Amendment protections of what are called substantive due process rights uh, have been understood. Is there any thought that those rights could be in the court's sites next, that those are rights that could be reversed that sounds an extraordinary prospect but is is with this legal underpinning gone is that a possibility i don't think it's a possibility i think it's a likelihood i read alito's opinion as inviting states to bring challenges to those rights so that they could be curtailed so you could see a state banning interracial marriage i mean this seems extraordinary potentially you know it's a uh, it's a very expansive view of states rights to limit the individual liberty of their citizens, uh, particularly with regard to sexuality and marriage. 
and sort of bodily autonomy issues, and it's a very narrow understanding of citizens' uh, ability to appeal to federal protection of those liberties. Now, much of the discussion and much of the fury that's unleashed uh, in America right now is predicated on the assumption that this document will be the court's final decision. Now, of course, this was a draft. We've been stressing it. So has much of the coverage ever since it was leaked. But what's your view? I mean, how likely is it that a document at this stage of the drafting does then get changed substantively or become diluted? Or should we be thinking this is going to be the final ruling? So we know that the draft of the document that we've seen has five votes of support. It has the votes of Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, There is some reporting and a lot of speculation about uh, the vote of John Roberts, the Chief Justice, but that's not certain. And we do know that there are occasions in which justices uh, change their reasoning over the course of deliberations and and even on, on rare occasions even change their votes. But I would be surprised if the decision that we saw come out of the court likely at the end of June is substantially different from this one. And indeed, I think there was a line from Alito in his opinion, essentially pleading with his fellow judges to hold firm and to stiffen their spine in the face of what might be coming. Yeah, uh, The justices know that this is an unpopular opinion. Abortion rights are contrary to Alito's claim in his opinion. They're not actually tremendously controversial. There is widespread majority support for abortion rights and indeed for Roe v. Wade. Uh, So the justices know very well that they are acting contrary to public opinion here, but they have the power to insulate themselves from public opinion uh, and the public doesn't have much power to check them. But Alita, I think, anticipated a huge backlash and sort of said, you know, we've got to hold firm anyway. Let's say that is what happens uh, and this does pass. Walk us through exactly, you know, almost in sort of immediate terms would happen as a consequence. Abortion would become illegal more or less immediately in a majority of American states. So about 13 states have what are called trigger laws, which are laws that have been on the books often for many years, uh, anticipating exactly this moment that will ban abortion as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned. Many other states have uh, pre-Roe bans that are still in effect or will go into effect once again, once the Roe decision is overturned. And we can expect uh, states that, that don't have such laws in place already to clamor to ban abortion within their borders. So it's estimated that abortion will become illegal in 26 or 27 states, and it will create a vast geographical region in this uh, physically very large country in which abortion is illegal abortion is inaccessible. And, and we're talking really, I suppose, about the south, southern states, and what, I suppose, women would have to be tr- braced to travel hundreds of miles to get into, maybe even more than that, to get into states where it is legal. And that would be obviously very costly. In some cases, I suppose, impossible. Who who do people who are expert on this, like you, think will be most affected by this change? What groups are most vulnerable to this change? Abortion uh, will be rendered illegal throughout the 
American South and the former Confederacy, it will also become illegal in much of the Midwest Plains and up through our very large Mountain West. These very rural areas are places where uh, women will not have access to abortion and that traveling that you mentioned, the, uh, the traveling to access a legal procedure in, in a place where abortion has not been banned, uh, that's travel that happens over hours or even days. It's travel that you need a plane ticket to go to. So when we talk about who's going to be most impacted, what we're looking at really is low-income women who don't have that money to travel. Now, we should talk about the next phase of where this goes, which is the campaign to stop it. And we saw within certainly hours, maybe even sooner, of this leak being made public that there were crowds gathering outside the Supreme Court building, you know, holding up placards, launching their protests. And that's partly because this very unusual situation of a decision from the Supreme Court being leaked or known about before it had been formally published by the court. And there is a whole very interesting, admittedly tangential, but interesting part of this story that has got a lot of people in Washington exercised, simply because it is so rare for a judgment of the Supreme Court to leak. It is normally absolutely watertight. But that goes to the question of of, of sort of galvanising opposition. So let's just talk about that a bit. You know, what is the speculation so far about who might have leaked uh, this judgment and why they did it? You're right. That is quite unusual. Uh, and particularly in a case that is so tremendously controversial and so tremendously significant for American lives. Uh, on the right wing, I can tell you there is universal sense of, of assurance that this leak came from the left. I would cast some skepticism on the right wing sense of outrage and, and, and persecution that this is a uh, a left wing leak. But, you know, I think the leak question, it's hard for me to get too worked up about it, frankly, when the content of what was leaked is so uh, is so much more substantial and is going to be so devastating for people. I think it's, you know, if anything, it might be a bit of a distraction attempt to divert attention from just how cruel and how maximalist and, and really reckless this opinion is. Sure. I think one one consequence of it, though, is the point I mentioned just uh, uh, earlier, which is it does at least give Democrats and others opposed to this change some time to marshal their forces and prepare a response rather than be caught by surprise. How do you see particularly the the administration, the Biden administration, responding to it, uh, what, what they can do uh, now that they are, they can, you know, they can't claim to be ambushed by it when it comes because they've had due warning here. What options are available to the Democrats, to Joe Biden's administration to prevent this happening or at least to be ready for in response to it? You know, uh, very candidly, I've been I've been quite disappointed with the Biden administration. They have not been leading on this issue. They have not been treating it with the seriousness that it deserves until yesterday. Joe Biden refused to even say the word abortion as the right to abortion was was threatened by this case and by this extremist court. Uh, and, you know, after 
the court allowed SB8 in Texas to go into effect, there were a lot of proposals for things that Joe Biden could do. The fact that a state was curtailing and banning a federally recognized right gave him the authority to send the National Guard to protect abortion clinics or to have federally employed medics perform abortions uh, in federal buildings and on federal land for for Texas women. Uh, He didn't do any of that. He issued a statement that wasn't particularly strongly worded, and he had his Justice Department say that they would step up uh, enforcement of what's called the FACE Act, a like little enforced federal law that is supposed to uh, prevent protesters from blocking entrances to abortion clinics. It was a very weak response. Uh, He has also not been leading in Congress. He has not uh, made a campaign for the Women's Health Protection Act, a federal law that would codify Roe that has uh, passed the House of Representatives but is languishing in the Senate and failing to get support. He has not been willing to expand the Supreme Court to create a more robust and longstanding defense of abortion rights uh, in that most influential uh, and most powerful branch of our government. So, you know, Biden is not leading on this issue. Many activists have been saying this, that, you know, it's not enough now to talk about uh, you know, next moves ahead. It's all the the failure by the administration to do something in advance of this moment. But w- given where we are now, I'm just interested to see if there are some options. And one is this notion of, which we've talked about on this podcast before, of enshrining into law the Roe protection of the constitutional right, making it a legal right that's passed by Congress. And to do that to suspend, break the filibuster that normally requires a majority of 60 in the Senate and say instead 50 votes plus one, the tie-breaking vote of the vice president, would be enough to pass abortion rights into law. And then the Supreme Court could not overturn it because it would have been passed by Congress. That's the thinking. Just tell us whether you think that is a possibility, what the obstacles are in the way. And one thought I have myself is that whether if it even got to that point, and if Joe Biden said, OK, I'm prepared for this exceptional circumstance, to lift and break the filibuster, whether actually there would be 50 votes in the Senate to enshrine uh, a woman's right to choose into law, given, and again, we've talked about it in this podcast, the sort of maverick voting habits of a Joe Manchin in West Virginia or Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. You know, are there the votes for it? Or will it take, as I think Joe Biden sort of hinted, elections in fact stated there will have to be voters will have to elect pro-choice officials this november in those midterm elections you're right that the women's health protection act does not have 50 votes uh joe manchin a democratic senator from west virginia who is quite conservative uh is an opponent opponent of abortion a lifelong catholic democratic senator joe manchin tells me that he's always been pro-life And despite getting pressure from progressives in his own party, he tells me that he believes federal funds should not be used to fund abortions anywhere in the country. And he has said that he would not be willing to vote for the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, And I think it's it's even less likely that he would overturn the filibuster in order to to allow it to be passed. Uh, There was some speculation that a pair of nominally pro-choice Republican senators, Susan Cowan of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, might be willing to back the bill. 
uh, but that has not been forthcoming either. Uh, Biden has sort of passed the buck on to the November elections, but you know, liberals in this country are, are quite tired. It was a feat of tremendous organizing and uh, like really exceptional amounts of manpower to win Biden the presidential election. And there's a, I believe a red wave coming in November. Uh, hopefully it will not be as bad as it potentially could be. But um, the idea that we can simply outvote uh, the judicial activism of this extremist court is, I think, a, a tad naive. I mean, I wondered about the red wave and whether or not that could be stopped by women voters, including ones who normally vote Republican, who nevertheless want to, perhaps in the secrecy of a secret ballot, secure and protect their right to have an abortion. And I wonder, therefore, if you could see a galvanising turnout and in and in party choice of women voters who say enough's enough this is too much and do come out for democrats or is that uh well you did say it was naive is that naive too well you know it's optimistic and i hope it's not naive i hope it happens uh i will say that abortion has been a very public issue in american politics for many years uh republicans have been campaigning on it very passionately for many years i think the voters who are motivated by abortion rights on one side of the issue or the other have more or less already sorted themselves into parties there's no uh predicting the future uh that's you know the lowest form of journalism i hope to be surprised uh i hope to see a galvanizing effect on american voters but i i don't think we should count on that Let's then just widen out to the overall implications. In that piece, when you said about America being a stupider, less vibrant place, I'm interested to hear what you, for you to unpack the meaning of that. But I think the way to do it perhaps is to move to the wider argument that you moved to, which is that you suggested actually that this was, as it were, not just an attack on abortion rights, there was something even larger that was a stake at stake here, that this was an attack on a, a particular notion of autonomy and personhood. And I'm keen for you to explain some of that to us here. Yeah, you know, I really understand abortion bans not uh, simply as a prohibition on a medical procedure, but really an attack on women's citizenship. Uh, there is maybe no precondition of participation in a democratic society that is more foundational and essential than control over one's own body. Uh, if you can't make a decision about when you're going to be pregnant, about when you're going to uh, start a family, about how large that family will be and what it will look like, I think it's really hard to also dictate your life in a way that can make intellectual and civic contributions. And I think it's really hard to call yourself free. And I think that as we see abortion bans go into effect, as abortion becomes less accessible, more expensive, I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, sadistic cruelty and, and eventually prosecution of women seeking to control their own lives. But I also think we're going to see an attrition of women's talent and women's gifts, uh, people who would be able to contribute things other than child rearing, 
you know, their contributions won't be made. And that will uh, make us all much poorer spiritually. And others have made the point that women will, for the first time in their history, they stand to have fewer rights than their mothers or even their grandmothers. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, an interesting time to be a feminist in America right now because there's this intergenerational recognition. You know, Roe has been law for uh, just under 50 years, and that means that many of the older women who are still alive in America had abortions pre-Roe or remember what it was like to try and get an abortion pre-Roe. And they have been telling us what we're in for and what they describe is quite scary. Uh, the post-Roe world might look different from the pre-Roe world in a few ways. Uh, medication abortion is much more widely available now, which is a much safer way of self-managing an abortion. And there's uh, already efforts, particularly from international nonprofit groups, uh, to help American women access that safer way of, of uh, self-inducing. But there's also more surveillance and more criminalization than there was before. So uh, we're, we're going into an unknown world. Uh, but I think that the memory of freedom, the memory of greater access to public life, that women had in the Roe era will uh, motivate a persistent feminist movement. What do you make of those people who've been saying it's Gilead? It's the, the Handmaid's Tale is turning into reality. Is that overheated or do you, do you, do you share some of that sentiment? This is a, is a metaphor that's very controversial in the abortion rights movement. I think uh, I try to meet people where they are. I think that there is historical precedent for some of the cruelties that are being inflicted on American women in the post-Roe era, right? Like we can look to historical precedent. We don't need to, to look to fiction. Uh, on the other hand, I think alarm and, and sadness and rage are all appropriate responses to, to what's happening to us. All right, we always ask our guests, Moira, a what else question. And there has been and was other news even on this, uh, um, on the momentous day this came out. And that is in the primary in Ohio, J.D. Vance, who had been endorsed by Donald Trump, won the primary. So he will be the Republican candidate uh, in the Senate race in the state of Ohio. There's a victory there for Donald Trump because it shows his backing still moves the needle. It came on the within the same 24-hour period in which three of the nine Supreme Court judges, three judges appointed by Donald Trump, have changed half a century of American history. One way or another, the shadow, the legacy of Donald Trump looms very large, doesn't it? It does. You know, I do think that uh, Vance's victory in that primary, uh, which, you know, before his endorsement by Trump, he was not predicted to win. It does show that he is still a towering figure in the Republican Party and that he can still move votes. Um, I have absolutely got to thank the 45th, the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to the president for everything, for endorsing me. And I got to say, a lot of the fake news media out there, and, and, and there are some good ones in the back there, there's some bad ones too, let's be honest. But they wanted to write a story 
that this campaign would be the death of Donald Trump's America First agenda. Ladies and gentlemen, it ain't the death of the America First agenda. But also, you know, I see Vance's victory and Vance's campaign as a sort of coextensive with the anti-choice movement that we're seeing uh, come to fruition on the court. You know, Vance has run a grievance-focused campaign. He has rallied anger at people of color, at uh, women's liberation, at abortion rights indeed, at, about, at a women's uh, entrance into the workforce, at gay rights. It's an identity-based campaign. It is an anger and grievance-based campaign, and it has had, uh, especially now with the endorsement of Trump, quite a bit of appeal uh, to voters in Ohio, and we'll see if he wins in the general election. Moira Donegan, I know it's been a tough week. Um, thank you so much for joining me. For It's been a sobering conversation, but thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. Do listen back to Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, where Jessica Glenzer explains in more detail the ramifications overturning Roe v. Wade will have on the day-to-day lives of millions of Americans. So do listen out for that. Now, a shift of gear. I want to let you know about a rather nice thing The Guardian is doing this very moment, and that is partnering with this year's Glastonbury Festival. To enter worthy winners, all readers need to do is nominate someone they believe deserves to win one of 10 pairs of tickets to Glastonbury. There'll be a link on today's episode description on The Guardian website that will let you do just that. You must be in the UK to enter. You've got to be 18 years of age or older. You'll have to get permission from your nominee to enter on their behalf, so no surprises, I'm afraid. Make sure you hurry, though, because this competition ends on Sunday, the 8th of May. But for now, it's goodbye. The producers this week were Danielle Stevens and Natalie Katena. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Coming soon, a four-part investigative series. A new civil rights division has been set up in New Orleans. Their task? To re-examine thousands of cases and work out whether those people should still be in prison. This six-month investigation takes you into the heart of the Deep South and asks, is it possible to right the wrongs of the past? Listen to The Division New Orleans from this Friday, 6th of May, and across the weekend on Today in Focus. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.